Blog Talk Radio. broadcast of the REPA Radio Hour, brought to you by the Eastern Airlines Radio Show and the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. We share the stories and memories of the pilots who flew the planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. My name is Neil Holland, retired Eastern captain and producer of the show. We hope you will enjoy the stories we bring to you every Thursday at this time and you will join in the conversation during the broadcast. Now, let's get the show in the air. Reap of Flight 15. Wind 10024, runway 13 right, cliff takeoff. Roger, Reaper 15. We're ready to go. We're on the roll. In his quest for the big idea, Channel 11's Henry Tillman appeals to the people of New York. Ladies and gentlemen, I need you. Help me find a way to tell New York that Channel 11 is bigger and better than ever. If you love our movies, our comedies, our news, our Yankee baseball, send your big ideas to me, Henry Tillman, Box 1100. Together, we can dream the impossible, reach the unreachable, boldly go where no man or woman has ever gone. Yep, scramble. Let's not keep them waiting. At the Eastern Air Shuttle, we have a crew on standby whose sole mission is to fly you to Boston or Washington whenever one of our regular shuttle planes is full. And for that reason, we at the Eastern Air Shuttle Service can guarantee you something no other airline can. A seat. The Eastern Air Shuttle, a guaranteed seat without a reservation. or go to our radio show provider at 
www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Eddie. That's at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And click on the arrow to use on your smartphone. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given a message that the show has not yet begun. Many of you call in the show at 213-816-1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and you will have to do is uh, share your, to share your comments or join in the discussion is to touch the number one key on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute <laughs> your phone's microphone. Then just join in the fun, and now you can choose to listen or talk with one of our hosts. And now let's see what Chuck Albright's up to. Chuck? Today we continue sharing more about the life of this remarkable pilot. Here are the stories written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines with us each week. There are stories written by pilots who flew planes of the Picard Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, Eastern Airlines stories printed in Repartee and other publications. Captain Mike, how about starting our program off today? Sure, Chuck. Thanks. Eastern was the first to fly the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, which the company dubbed the Whisperliner. And on the maintenance end, we called it the Golden Goose. Well, we'll get to that later. The 300-plus passenger load was ideal for New York to San Juan, Chicago, San Juan, Miami, San Juan, Atlanta, San Juan, which our producer told me that he flew many of the Atlanta flights to Puerto Rico, and most of them full. Of course, the early in its beginning back in Eastern in 1972, the tragic flight that crashed in the Everglades put a dark shadow on the plane. But mostly the failure of the crew to maintain the decorum of cockpit crew management, which later became known as CRM, which is Crew Resource Management. Chuck, we've heard a lot of many many of your stories over the over the last few shows and whatnot and on the maintenance on this big beautiful bird. What do you have to add? Well, it sure was fun working on it. And better yet, I was one of the few in the maintenance crews actually certified uh, to power the L-1011 about the airport. Primarily, we were doing taxis and run-ups to the terminal and in the maintenance hangar. Don't get me started on those 1011 stories. That would take up the entire time that we'd have for this show. And when we would hear the experience, then we wouldn't hear the experience of Captain Tom Early without of out of San Juan. Mr. Producer, would you kindly tell us about Tom's story? In the 2000 issue of Repartee, Tom Early writes a story titled A Sea of Beads. It was a splendid sunlit 1983 September morning at New York City's JFK Kennedy International Airport as I walked toward the Eastern Airlines crew schedule office to learn about my sought-after turnaround flight. My 27 years as an Eastern Airlines pilot provided me the opportunity to become a senior flight officer and the captain of a great 10-member crew which manned one of the finest passenger aircraft of the 80s, the TriStar Lockheed L-1011. After entering the crew schedule's office, I was delighted to hear the scheduler say, Captain Early, you have a turnaround flight scheduled for about two weeks. You'll be flying from JFK to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then make a turnaround to JFK. He added, the estimated total flight time is seven hours with one hour rest at San Juan International Airport. The schedule was appealing because such turnaround flights paid as well and offered considerable time time off. And in effect, we would fly the turnaround for three consecutive days, followed by a four-day interval of rest. Smooth first leg. Our 1,500-mile flight from JFK to San Juan was uneventful, 
with good weather and favorable winds. The landing was as smooth as could be. We arrived on schedule at 3.30 p.m. and had one hour to relax, regroup, and sign off all the necessary papers to leave from San Juan to JFK. It was just a routine procedure in the life of a captain and his crew, except that our morale was exceptionally high because we got a good deal, the JFK San Juan International Flight. Return flight preparations went like this. Prior to any flight, a walk-around inspection is required to check for excessive tire wear, hydraulic leaks, or any exterior deficiencies, which could affect flight safety. Additionally, the flight engineer supervises the fuel loading. In this particular flight from JFK or to San Juan to Kennedy, approximately 80,000 pounds of fuel were loaded into the fuel tanks. Our passenger list, which consisted of approximately 350 Puerto Ricans, contributed to the near maximum takeoff weight of 430,000 pounds. Now the takeoff. After performing the required pre-checks to our satisfaction, we departed the gate on time. The TriStar rolled out nicely toward our takeoff position. As we taxied uh, into the position on the runway, I told my co-pilot, take over the controls. It's your turn in the barrel. It was an established procedure to give a co-pilot the chance to fly. Aside from providing the captain the required relief, the co-pilot needs the experience in order to qualify as a future aircraft commander. Of course, I still retain the option of resuming control if it was necessary. Everything was proceeding normally, including the final items on the takeoff checklist. We quickly sped down the runway It was an exhilarating experience to push the power levers forward while at the same time commanding max power. All the readings were normal as initial liftoff was achieved at 145 knots. Malfunction. When the splendid TriStar was off the ground about 100 feet, my co-pilot gave the command, gear up. I responded by reaching forward to pull the gear lever upward but it would not budge. The gear was frozen. We obviously had a problem, and so informed the Puerto Rican control tower. The tower notified us, circle the field at about 3,000 feet until the problem is resolved. This was a first-time experience for me, and there was nothing in the technical manual to cope with this emergency. After circling the field, I called the tower. Request flyby at about 200 feet so we, you could uh, take a look at our landing gear. After approval was granted, we cautiously flew by the tower only to hear, your right main gear looks like it is broken. The front two wheels on the right side are dangling in a downward position. Dishearteningly, we ascended to 3,000 feet and resumed circling the field as we pondered the next step. We were informed that two nearby National Guard F-86 fighters were in on their way to give their visual appraisal. Their observations confirmed the control tower's assessment. Now, passenger anxiety. After the fighter pilots wished us good luck and flew away, my thoughts turned to the worried passengers uh, and to my concerned flight attendants. Over the public address system, I announced, this is Captain Early. We are in the process of resolving a mechanical problem, and we will get back to you as soon as possible. Meanwhile, relax and keep your seatbelts on and at your seats upright just in case we decide to land for repairs. Thank you. With my fingers, I crossed 
with my fingers I cross, I anxiously return to the problem at hand. Now the decision. After careful deliberation, the crew and I decided that we had no choice but to land. The possibility of a fire was uh, strong, particularly uh, if the rest of the main gear collapsed and, and directional control was lost on the runway. To lessen hazardous condition, we dumped fuel down to a minimum level. We then advised the tower that we were ready to land. The tower cleared us, and the airport's emergency squad had foamed the runway in order to reduce the possibility of creating sparks which could ignite the plane's fuel. Now the sea of beads. Before starting the landing pattern, it was time to check the pulse of the passengers and flight attendants. I unbuckled my seat and headed for the quarter-inch peephole of the cockpit door, which faced the passenger cabin. The peephole had a wide-angle lens, which enabled me to see the entire cabin. It was fascinating to see a sea of glittering beads with silvery objects. I suddenly realized that I was looking at rosary beads with crosses in the hands of passengers who were nervously engaged in fervent prayer. The flight attendants appeared to be scared but uh, maintained a proper level of composure. After viewing the sea of beads in an atmosphere of tension, I took three giant steps back to my left cockpit seat and hoped that the power of prayer would be a factor toward a successful landing. Now comes the final approach. Instructions were given to the crew to begin the landing pattern, and the passengers were reminded to secure themselves in their seats. Eventually, the co-pilot advised me, we are downwind, ready to turn final. I then assumed full command as we turned on a final approach. The descent... The tower gave us wind directions and other essential information, which included the positioning of fire trucks. Our final check was completed at about five miles out. All we had to do was to land this big bomb on the runway with hope that the dangling landing gear would level itself with the other wheels as our landing struts compressed. With a tremendous sigh of relief, the plane landed without much difficulty. We were home free. The TriStar rolled a long way to the near end of the runway and stopped without vibration. The aftermath, the airplane was towed to the terminal where the relief passengers safely deplaned and maintenance personnel began repairing the broken landing gear while I reported to the Eastern Airlines Operations Office to discuss the situation with Federal Aviation Administration officials. The FAA offered me some Monday morning quarterbacking advice about the problem. I simply replied, all the passengers walked away without even a, a nosebleed. The aircraft is in one piece. The crew survived without injury and performed well under adver adverse conditions. I rest my case. I left the meeting with the impression that none of us was responsible for the malfunction. After two to three hours of waiting, our maintenance people declared the aircraft serviceable. Uh, it was cleaned fueled and prepared to complete the last leg of the turnaround to JFK with the same group of passengers. The trip went smoothly and without incident. It appeared that confidence in flight safety was restored, particularly among the crew members. From that day forward until I retired, every flight under my command was a piece 
of cake in comparison with this incident. Now, in conclusion, the rocking chair. Finally, after 42 years as a crew member or commercial pilot and a World War II Navy aviator, I retired my wings in 1984 at the compulsory age of 60. Since then, I often uh, sit comfortably in my rocking chair in the fireplace or by the fireplace and reminisce about my flying experiences, particularly my first JFK SJN turnaround. When I think of the incident, I always fantasize that the landing was successful because the sea of beads served as a buffer between the hard ground and the dangling wheels. Well, let's uh, talk about some tense moments earning your paycheck. That was one of them. Uh, when they talked about the uh, aftermath with the uh, minor maintenance or whatever they had to do to fix that airplane, I, I, I imagine that some of the seat covers might have had to been changed too. Uh, and as you know, the closing thought of an experienced Eastern captain, Tom, uh, was at the end of his story. Uh, what a shame to have to retire at only age 60 years of age. Just wasn't fair back in back then, uh, as they were now to continue to 65. But still, it's too young to hang up your uh, your spurs, so to say, with thousands of hours and command experience under your belt. Perhaps, Mr. Producer. We can do a future show on retirement over the history of commercial aviation, uh, retirement over the uh, commercial aviation. And now, what do you have next for our listeners? Well, we're certainly going to do that, Mike. Uh, I think it would be a very interesting uh, program to show that um, when I first got my pilot's license uh, in a small J-3 Cub, Airline pilots were permitted to fly until 55 years of age. 55. (laughs) Seems like uh, that's awfully young now at my age, but then they moved it up to 60 years of age. It still seems awfully young. And now 65. To me, it seems like it should be extended even longer. I was very fortunate in my career. I was able to fly till I was 75 plus. What? So, but that was a different deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and why did you hang it up at 75? Why not shoot for a world Guinness record? <laughs> well, there was a few guys out there older than me, but I think the uh, electronics and regulation finally got to me. I says I got tired okay. of watching rather than flying. And regulations got a little too stiff, so I, yeah. I said to myself, "It's time to, to take the spurs off and hand it to some somebody younger." Well, let's do a poem now by an unknown author, and uh, and then and we have two little short. Uh, these are short poems, and then we'll talk about uh, Jim Holder's got something to say about the 1011, and uh, and we'll get to Jim. But let's listen to this poem title. Flying the Line. Flying the Line by an unknown Arthur. Yesterday, when I was young, before the spring in my step got sprung, I was a co-pilot flying the line when I was young and in my prime. Lean of flank and steely of eye, happy and heedless of years going by, I wore a grommet in the rim of my hat to make it look sharp, not let it go flat. We'd put a quarter on the rudder trim to bet on a grease job landing, and one would gain a quarter and one gain understanding. I tried to help the captains when the crosswind was bad. Skip, are you going to use a wing low or utilize a crab? Tuned in the ATIS early if the weather wasn't good. Asked them about a Category 2 or if they thought we should. 
I look up the approach and study hard the plate because I didn't want reporters to refer to us as the late. I flew with them all, the short and the tall, from Anderson to Zalatoris, and all in between, including extremes, including Marines, including Alvarez. Some were jokers, some were smokers, but somehow, over time, all shared their hard-won knowledge and showed me how to fly the line. The time went by as I wanted, for, waited for my turn, anticipating eagerly the money I would earn. Then I checked out with the passage of time and slid over to the left seat, a captain of the line. I took the silly grommet out and let the hat look crushed. New guys signed in and sought me out with voices loud or hushed. And I affected confidence while on the concourse floors when I sauntered past the people to open jetway doors. Oh, there may have been a time or two when I forgot the combination, but an agent always showed up there to save the situation. And faithful, the tradition, I'd find a pre-owned New York Times and scenes like those I'd file away to someday put in rhymes. I deadheaded south with pleasure to play You Bet Your Life. I knew that all would be just fine under Uncle Bob. I saved some time for the candlelight and sometimes went to jog. And wore the ID with a straight face to get past Deputy Dog. I was mostly glad to go there. I'm not saying it was heaven. They made me sweat a little when I hit the 767. I complained or of programmed learning and navigation automatic. The sympathetic answer was education can't stay static. Things come around, co-pilots young and in their prime would tell me just how great it was to be there on the line. I knew I wasn't getting younger, but it wasn't all that bad, except when you'd ring for coffee and the girl would call you dad. I appreciated hitters when they went into a slump. When I had successive landings, that would flatten out your rump. The bags kept getting heavier, but it wasn't a big deal. I went along like others and got some with a wheel. The day finally came, as I always knew it would. I finished up the final trip and hung it up for good. I'm getting old and wearing out. They say I'm past my prime. But often yet my thoughts return to when I flew the line. And then come flooding in the memories of the past, as all the while the sands are trickling through the hourglass. Sometimes the candles flicker, though the light's still burning bright, as we face into the west and see approaching night. The day will come when all of us will finally go west and stand before the judgment seat to take the final test. They say sometimes St. Peter will treat you mighty fine, and if that's true, then what he'll do is send me back to fly the line. Now, most of you have heard this next short poem about retirement. Now, here's a great poem. It's written by an anonymous author. I may have uh, read it once before on the radio show. But it's worth repeating. And it's under Nostalgia Corner in the 1978 issue of Repartee. It goes, My get up and go has got up and went. How do I know my youth is all spent? Well, my get up and go has got up and went. 
But in spite of it all, I am able to grin when I think where my get-up has been. With my ears in a drawer, my teeth in a cup, my eyes on the table until I wake up. Air sleep dims my eyes, I say to myself, is there anything else I should lay on the shelf? I am happy to say as I close the door, my friends are the same, only perhaps more so. When I was young, my slippers were red. I could kick up my heels right over my head. When I grew older, my slippers were blue, but still I could dance the whole night through. Now I am old, my slippers are black. I walk to the store and puff my way back. The reason I know my youth is all spent, my get up and go has got up and went. But I really don't mind when I think with a grin of all the grand places my get up has been. Since I've retired from life's competition, I busy myself with complete repetition. I get up each morning, dust off my wits, pick up the paper, and read the obits. If my name is missing, I know I'm not dead. So I eat a good breakfast and go back to bed. And there's a note. As far as can be determined, the author is anonymous. I wish I could have known him because it is evident that he had a wonderful sense of humor. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That's all the readings that we have today. And Jim Holder, what do you think? Oh, man, that's true. That's true. I remember that when I left the flying line. Those lines about flying the line sure bring back memories, and I couldn't have written it better, although I can't say I would have changed the letter. Now, listen, I just made a rhyme. I think I'll go out and spend the dime. Oh, man, enough of that nonsense. <laughs> listen, we had a captain that had to board or return a 10-11 flight after takeoff out of San Juan. I want to say it was Captain Gib Guren, Bob Green, both in Atlanta base. Neil, you know them. I do, too. Do you yeah. remember that one? Yeah, I sure do remember it. And I'm inclined to think it's it was Gibb. I flew a lot of trips with Gibb, and uh, I seem to remember that story. And I think it was in repartee. I've got to find it, and uh, maybe we'll air it one day. But, yes. Well, okay. I don't know. I don't know if I remember it or not. I bet you do the one, remember the one about the 1011, the two-engine ferry flight. You know, that's where they don't have passengers. They're flying out of Mexico City. And, Neil, do we have time for me to give you a short sequence of events about that one? Yes, sir. Please do so. All right. And you can pin this under a story we could use in Volume 2 of Wings, Manly, Man, parentheses, Y, Manny, Many. Um, well, I'm getting off track here. I better get going. <laughs> and it goes like this. Well, Captain Paul Town and the three-man ferry crew, they were trained to fly airplanes for Eastern with various maintenance issues, and they were qualified on all the Eastern airplanes, not just the 1011. They positioned themselves to Mexico City one morning back in, I think it was in 1972. And they had an airplane, a 1011, uh, that the number three engine uh, was inoperative to the point that they couldn't fix it in Mexico City. So those that crew, those three pilots, was were going to ferry it to Miami. Now, however, Mexico City is almost 9,000 feet above sea level. They couldn't take enough fuel on a two-engine takeoff to go all the way to Miami. So they first had to take off and fly west over to Acapulco, Mexico sea level to put on enough fuel to turn around and fly back east to Miami. Acapulco's at sea level, therefore they could take off lots of fuel because the engine produced more power at sea sea level. So now they were taking off northeast at Mexico City using only engines number one and number two. Captain Town was actually at the controls. And right after liftoff, the number one engine compressor stalls with a loud bang and quit. 
Now, they're in the air with only one engine running, number two, and it's the engine that's mounted in the tail so there was no yawning. If it had been number two that went out with only number one, they wouldn't have made it, I'm sure. But they were able to retract the landing gear and flaps, and they continued straight ahead slowly, very slowly, gaining altitude. There's a big flat area northeast of the airport that continues for many miles, maybe 30 or 40 miles, old seabed, I think, even up that high in the mountain. And they really thought maybe if they had to, they could try to land on that seabed. But they were able to climb a little bit, so they started a very shallow right turn because when you roll into a bank, you know, you lose a lift vector. It's now not straight up. It's a little bit to the right. And they turned, circling back to the runway, and they actually got up very close to about 500 feet above the ground. And even like most of the time down there, I know, Neil, you've flown down there. The visibility 99 times out of 100 is very limited due to all the traffic smoke and atmosphere in that yeah, large bowl-like yeah. area around Mexico City. But yeah. they were staying close enough to the runway that they could see it off to their right. Uh, they lost it and found it and lost it and found it. But uh, I've talked to the, you know, the engineer on it, and I've talked to him several times, the flight engineer, junior guy in the cockpit. And they got it, and they extended the landing gear and were able to on that one engine still huffing and puffing. Uh, they landed on the same runway they had departed about six minutes early. They went there about six minutes and uh, safely came to a stop and signed some papers and jumped on an Eastern 727 scheduled flight back to Miami and said, to hell with this, we're going home. And I don't blame them, boy. <laughs> <laughs> little side well. note, that morning I had flown a charter from Kansas City to Acapulco Acapulco, I never can say that right. And I had about <laughs> a two-hour layover there, and I was sitting and reading the book in Eastern Flight Operations, waiting to load all the folks up that were going back from their vacation. And I heard overheard some conversations about a 1011 that was overdue that morning from Mexico City. And they were talking about, where is this airplane? And they were trying to get on the radio and phones, trying to find out. What happened? Where is that airplane? Because they, they were all set up to refuel it so it could fly back to uh, to Miami. Anyhow, we took off. I really didn't think a lot about it, but we took off. And by the time we got back to back to Kansas City, it, news was all over the place. All the radios talking stuff that about that miracle, and it was a miracle. But it was airmanship of the highest quality. And those three guys getting that airplane back around the one engine. Now, Captain Town's son, Jim, he's a good friend of mine. He's not with Eastern, but he's a neighbor, matter of fact. Lives about 15 miles from it. We put together a PowerPoint show about 40 minutes long about this event and started with Captain Town's service in World War II. He was a B-17 command pilot and had almost 100 missions and had a lot of stories to tell. We did. Wow. We presented this PowerPoint at the Atlanta Eastern Monthly Pilot Luncheon about a year ago, and a few months later we showed it again at the Crippen, Georgia QB meeting. And to say it was was well received is an understatement. It was really something. Well, yeah, you'll have to come down here to Jacksonville to our QB hangar here and present it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come uh, up to Long yeah. Island and present it. <laughs> there you go, traveling Jim. Hey, listen, uh, that airport elevation, what is it about? I forgot. It was about 7,000 feet, wasn't it? Or I, or? I think it's, it's just just under 9,000. I'd have to check 9,000, okay. A little and under 9,000. I flew in there many times in the 727, and it, you, you, really, you really had to – you know, yeah. watch the power. Oh, yeah, sure did. Bob, what did you say? Yeah, I was, yeah. I was thinking it's around 7,300 feet, and we used to yeah. go in there, well, on the 1011 too, but on the DC, DC-8, and when you had one of the uh, the older DC-8s with the smaller engines, you would use every bit of that 13,000, 15,000-foot runway there on uh-huh. takeoff because of the high altitude. Mm-hmm. Elevation seven thousand three hundred and forty-three feet. Yeah, that's right. Well, 
Well, when I, I took just off, looked, it I just looked like it, it up. Ten thousand. <laughs> the power loss of that sport. It's got to be at least ten thousand feet. Well, with the heat, it probably is. The density altitude oh, yeah. may have been 10,000. Yeah, density altitude, right. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hot day. Down, in the, down in South America, La Paz is like 13,300 and something feet. And uh-huh. that's, that's, that's the elevation of the airport. And the crews flying in there had to put their oxygen masks on as they yeah. raised the cabin up to right. field altitude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, very interesting uh, discussion there. I I only had one problem, one engine failure on the 1011, and we were flying Miami to to uh, New York, and um, uh, we were off on Control 1150. You guys know that's probably about what mm-hmm. 150 miles, 200 miles out from Jacksonville over the Atlantic, and the engineer says. Uh, uh, tap your gauge and, and, and that, that number uh, two engine gauge up front. We had tape gauges on the airplane, I can remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, sure enough, the tape had gone all the way down to the bottom. It should have been about three quarters of the way up because that's the rate at which fuel is being burned in those engines. But this number two engine tape was all the way down at the bottom, and the engineer got kind of concerned that he was showing the same thing on his engineer panel in the back. And so, yeah, we tapped the, the number two engine gauge, uh, and the tape didn't move. And he said, well, he says, looks like we're losing fuel. And, uh, you know, the old thought, can you control it manually? Well, all <laughs> sorts of valves, but, uh, we got it shut down, shut down the engine. And, um, instead of continuing over the Atlantic direct to our destination, we decided, well, it might be a good idea to get closer to airports. So we you turned think? the airplane, got a, got a clearance <laughs> over land uh, so we could line up with different runways as we proceeded thinking, well, we might lose another one. And, uh, of course, we had to descend down to a lower altitude because we couldn't operate at the altitude we were. And uh, so I was flying first officer on the airplane, and the captain, I think it was uh, Johnny Johnson, who just passed away. I think he was 99, wasn't he, Jim Holder? Yeah, yeah. 99. Oh, oh Johnny, uh, he's, he's pretty cool. And he said, well, he says, I'll get on the phone, and I'll talk to the passengers and tell them we got a lot of weather out here that we want to avoid, and we're going to go inland. And it's going to be, we was going to put us about 15 minutes late arriving. And of course, which was a lie, you could see all the way to Canada from where we were. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as it turned out, what had happened, we found out later on what had happened, is maintenance had changed the fuel filter, which was a, I don't know how large it is, but I understand it's kind of like a, a ball, a large ball of stainless steel. And they, and Chuck, you could probably verify it after I finish the story here. And they took a new one to replace one that uh, I guess had worn out or needed to be replaced after so long. And they theorized that the mechanic or the person handling that part had dropped that stainless steel cylinder or uh, ball of a fuel filter. And kind of looked at it and said, well, it looks pretty good, no dents in it or whatever, and installed it as a replacement. And at that altitude, thirty, I think we were at 37,000 feet, at that altitude, it's mighty cold, probably about 55 degrees below zero. And as it turned out, uh, that crack, that minor, minor crack exploded, and all the fuel was just coming out unfiltered. And that's why the tape was um, was not functioning correctly. So anyhow, mm-hmm. uh, we shut that one engine, and that's the only problem I think I ever had with the 1011 flying. And thank goodness I didn't have what uh, Captain Early had and Captain Town had. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, you know, uh, this, this is uh, this is Bob again. I was on the airplane from pretty early. I wasn't in the first class, but 
we did have to go out to Palmdale for simulator work because Eastern didn't have their simulators yet. But uh, I was flying uh, second officer on it. But I remember we used to have all kinds of engine problems with that airplane. And if I had a San Juan turn, a lot of, a lot of us would bring an overnight bag because you <laughs> might end up in Bermuda, Bermuda as often as not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, well, you know say, uh, Jim? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've uh, in my flying career, counting the military and Eastern and ATA and all that, I've, I've had uh, a lot of people say I've had more than my share of engine problems, and and uh, thinking, and, and almost every one of the engines that I had a problem with, other than the T Bird, which only had one, was the number three engine. And on this number three engine, the 1011, I was we were coming from San Juan, and I was the first officer, and Sonny Seaman, very very senior captain. Uh, I was flying that leg, nonstop from San Juan to O'Hare, and we had up there in the daisy chain, you know, at night, you know, flying around, yeah. Yeah. downwind, you know, and uh, level off at 6,000 feet, and I brought the power up a little bit, airplane yawed a little bit. I said, well, that's strange. And I uh, looked down, and the number three tape you were talking about, it was all the way down. Yeah. And I you know, I felt it y'all, you know, when I showed the power up and I said, Sonny, Sonny, I think number three engine just quit. And old Sonny, he's so cool, he looked over there and said, Well, Jim, I think they did. Now you just keep on flying and I'll do something here. So he started fiddling around with the fuel and then what all he was doing, I don't know what he was doing. Next thing you know, whoop, here it came right back again. And so we came on in and he told him about it. And we went to the gate, and, of course, they swarmed all over the engine. You know, like I said, it was number three engine. That was always a bad engine yeah. for me on the Connie and the Eastern and wherever else. Number three engine. And uh, they came back and said, Captain, we can't find a thing wrong with this thing. We're going to take it out and give it a run-up. And they did, and they came back and said, it's running fine. He said, well, well, let's just put the folks on board then, and we'll just go on down to Atlanta. <laughs> and it did. It flew perfect all the way down to Atlanta. We don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> well, Chuck, I was going to ask you, and I had your mic turned off, about uh, you don't remember that incident, do you, about the uh, fuel fuel filter or what they look like? Yeah, they, they're a cylinder, a stainless steel cylinder. It yeah. fits up on the uh, left-hand side of the engine. You were lucky the fuel didn't. It must have uh, night, yeah. gone, gone straight down to the the um, bottom of the cowling because uh, you got a two-and-a-half-inch pipe there with fuel on it and uh, with a lot of pressure behind it. And uh, obviously, they would fill up in the cell area. So it must have been a, a very pinhole strike uh, hole that uh, allowed the fuel to drain out at the bottom. But yeah, it's a, it's about a foot long and maybe four inches in diameter. Uh, yeah. I never really changed one. Uh, it's very seldom that you would uh, change a fuel filter. Now, when they take the engine into the engine shop, of course, uh, the whole thing engine is taken apart. Obviously, the fuel filter has changed. Um, but well, out on the line, uh, I never changed one. But well, um, I had I had heard about the uh, the crack. They had told us yeah, to we, be very careful with the cylinders, uh, especially working around them or stepping on them. Or you know, guys would climb on the engine so big, you just climb over the engine, you know, and uh, do work. So, um, but I well, didn't work on that airplane. I think, I think the altitude had a lot to do with it too, and the coldness uh, fuel. The fuel being cold as it was, you know, we had to heat uh, the fuel uh, when we got up to altitude because of the temperatures. You remember that? I think right. the 727. I remember had fuel heaters that we used to have to heat up the fuel. Remember, Use Jim? Oil to do it. To call yeah, oil and used, oil or something like that. That's right. Used oil. Here's, here's a question for all you pilots out there. Have you ever flown an L-1011 with four engines? No. <laughs> no, I think I counted them. Everyone I flew had three. Maybe it was in well, my dream. <laughs> if, you, if, you the if you go between them, yeah, 
number one and number three apart. engine and open a, little, a couple of little panels, there are uh, uh, fixtures there for the bolts to hang an engine on so you can ferry it somewhere. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Like seven had the same thing, yeah. I thought yeah, you were yeah. going to say, Chuck, I thought you were going to say the little wrap that falls down in the event with the propeller. In fact, that's part of our test is uh, we have to have somebody with uh, they they get under the airplane uh, to the side of that. It's called a rat uh, ram air turbine. Yeah, and uh, we actually run it. You know, we activate it in the cockpit, and it folds on out and it starts to do its thing. You know, yeah, and uh, I think. I think Bob wanted to put a, a, his two cent in. Bob, you're overridden. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. All I was going to say on the on the three or four engine thing was maybe if you count the APU, but it's <laughs> yeah. a jet engine. <laughs> That's I, all. I, yeah. I remember on the, when we first got these 1011s, a couple of our mechanics at Kennedy they 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 brought one from the gate back to the to the hangar to be worked on. And when they when they they were kind of unfamiliar with the airplane because it was new, even though they were, one of the guys was checked out in the left seat uh, to taxi it down, uh, it showed up at the gate at the terminal at the uh, at the hangar with the rat hang, hanging out, and, and, and we were all oh. looking at it. drew It drew a big crowd because nobody ever seen one before. Yeah, but, uh, oh, yeah. Is, you gotta watch them. Got a, it's got a big, it's got a big spring on there, and it's we always. And this is when they came up with the safety bar to put across there when that's you were right. in maintenance. So if it didn't, if it come out, it would drive you through the floor, because that <laughs> thing, as we would say, it's spring loaded in the pissed off position. You know. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> oh, well. But I, I, I did I see uh, we ferried an engine. From Miami to New York, and they put it in between the number one engine and the fuselage on the wing. Yeah. Well, it's the only uh, ever, ever we, seen them we're fly. Gonna do them. A, we're gonna we're gonna do a show on the 1011, I believe, um, in the near future. Dorothy, uh, earmark that because uh, it's an interesting airplane. But I would like to ask you, pilot guys, about what your thoughts are about flying at age 65 and could you fly to 70 uh, I remember they said we couldn't fly after 55 years ago and we had to retire at 55 Elwood Pete Casada uh, put that in place the FAA chief back in the 50s and uh, and then later on uh, Alpha I guess pushed for 60 and we got 60 and those of us flying with Eastern Continue to think that we ought to be able to fly past 60. And Jim Oler, you may have been since you were a union representative. You may have represented some some uh, uh, people wanting to sue the FAA about extending uh, why, how long we could fly. Well, uh, I've represented. You know, I was a chairman here in Atlanta twice, and uh, we had some of those guys that wanted to do it, and one captain actually did. We won't go into that tonight. I hope. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. But well, but when I retired at ATA, I could have kept right on going. But I'll be honest with you. You know, I was ATA was a whole different airline. I was flying all over the world and gone all the time. I was just ready to hang it up. I really was at age sixty. Yeah. Well, like Mike told us before we went on the air, he flew until he was seventy-five. Mm-hmm. 75 plus, yeah, and I was still getting the first class medical, but I, I noticed that my uh, my skills were starting to diminish a little bit after I hit 70. You know, I, could, Who I wasn't you flying uh, quite with? a short. Antiquity? <laughs> no, I was flying. Uh, of course, I was flying as a uh, ca- captain on a 72 for the Getty people. You know, for uh, okay. so I worked with them for 22 years. You know, wow. and uh, we it was under Part 91. There was really yeah. no age uh, restriction. Uh, yeah. No net jets. You know, <laughs> most of those guys that fly over there, they they get to be around 72, 73, and they uh, they basically kick them out after that. 
But on the, well, on a private operation, you can you can go as long as your company will let you go. Well, I was hired by Parker Drilling Company in Tulsa, and to put together a two aircraft uh, 757s, and um, I reminded them of my age that I was over 60, and they said, "Oh, that's okay. We're going to fly Part 91, and we were going to fly it over to Russia." And I said, "Oh Lord, I'm I died and gone to heaven. <laughs> Here I am." <laughs> Chief pilot of two 757s, and um, as it turned out, Russia shut sh- uh, shot that deal down with Mobile Oil Company. But uh, yeah, that would have been great. That would really have been good flying. You didn't Anybody remember the that, famous you, pilot you, you in the thing by not flying in Russia? <laughs> oh no, I guess I didn't. No. <laughs> What you Did anybody uh, remember the famous test pilot that retired last month at the age of, I believe he was 80? No, don't believe I know that. Chuck Yeager. Famous test. Chuck Yeager. Oh, okay. yeah. He, he took was his still last flight last airplanes. month, I believe. Wow, wow. Okay. He was still Bob, you... He was still flying? Well, he... he was up until, I think, last month or the month before when he finally gave it up, he said, "He said, I'm, I'm too old." Well, he's wow. 90, 90 what, ninety six or something like that. Yeah, he's I in think his he 90s. was in the eighty. I don't think he was in his nineties. Well, no, he's well into his nineties. Oh yeah, he's in his nineties, Chuck. Yeah. All right. Look Where's at that quarterback. <laughs> okay. He's got to be ninety six. Yeah. We know. got some oh, callers okay. online. You guys want to join in? I've opened your mic. Uh, area code six one five. That sounds like Nashville, Tennessee. May not be, but uh, yeah, Tom, it's only seven, a quarter to lose the bet. How much? A quarter. Remember how you put the quarter on the on the uh, uh, rudder trim? Yeah. Rudder trim. Well, yeah. That's what that's what we can bet. That way, uh, we keep it all straight. Our oldest Chuck Yeager. Just ask Google. Ninety-seven. Okay, I lost that quarter. Yep. Well, you know, you know, with with inflation and all that, that should have been at least ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at this. Uh, who super glued the quarter on there? Yeah. There you go. You got time to find out what happened to your landing gear? Uh, yeah, do, 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 yeah. Do you remember that incident in San Juan? I remember being told about it. I, I, I was not working San Juan. We had the gear with the four tires and the lower part of the strut is called a trunnion. Yeah. And on that trunnion, there's a snubber actuator. And the job of that snubber actuator is to balance the truck, what they call the truck, which is the four wheels and the and the brakes. And either that truck, the, the snubber, leaked its hydraulic fluid, or it could have lost what they call a trunnion pin that holds it onto the truck to the landing gear. Did you ever find out what actually caused the landing gear to drop forward? Well, if the leveling cylinder, uh, if that loses hydraulic fluid, it locks yeah. out, and then the, the truck will droop. The wheels will hang down in the front because the wheels got to be right. level to get up in the in the well. Otherwise, it won't retract. Well, uh, interesting. That was, that was probably the problem that caused on an airplane. You know, yep, the 757 and the 767, the truck of the 75, the rear wheels hang down. And on the 767, the front wheels uh, hang down. And, Never could uh, figure that out. <laughs> I, I guess it was uh, de- depending on the elevation of the – of course, the 757 was high up, you know, with the uh, gear struts. Uh, they were pretty tall. But uh, anyhow, very interesting. Very Guys did a great job. Interesting. Anybody want to add anything? I want to get some people talking well, here. Area code 
615. Uh, you know, us guys there. at Kennedy used to, uh, you know, we called it this 1011 when it first came on. It, it was so much overtime. We used to call it the Golden Goose because it laid golden eggs of overtime. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Hello, Neil. I heard 1011. 1011. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was another name for it. Yeah. yeah. The 1011. Yeah. 1011. That was because the engine was built in Derby, England. But you know, once you started building them in the United States, you didn't have that problem. The main problem with that airplane was the Rolls Royce engines, and that's what they yep. contribute to. Uh, that's the, right. The down, yeah. The, yeah. Does the anybody know before. why they call it RB211? The uh, Rolls Royce, of course, but the B was for uh, uh, Barnoldswick, was the guy who designed the engine. So that's why it was uh-huh. called the RB. Hmm. That's I'm not sure. Barnoldswick, Bar- I think. I, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. I'm not very good with pronouncing words, as you already know. <laughs> None of us are. I know why they call him Pratt and Whitney's. Mr. Pratt and Mr. Whitney. Yeah, Amos Pratt. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, there's see, we got us a smart captain there. <laughs> yes, okay, you know, guys. The, the, other, the other the other big problem with that was the uh, multiplex system that ran the uh, entertainment lights. And oh, the muck system, system, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. that thing yeah. would start going off like a pinball machine. Yep. <laughs> I was lucky, and I, I didn't get put on that crew. <laughs> Well, interesting I remember stories one, today. One night we were doing a uh, an overnight check on a 1011 at Kennedy, and uh, somebody, nobody ever knew who it was, uh, hit the oxygen switch in the, in the, on the engineer's panel. And Uh-oh. all of those, you know, they all had oxygen generators in there, as you know. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't an oxygen system. But all of the masks in the whole cabin came down. So they all had to be repacked before the airplane went to the gate for passengers. You wouldn't want to light a match, would you? No, nothing was uh, nothing deployed at all because nothing, it's just the masks escaped. came down. Okay, all right. Yeah, you well, wouldn't get any oxygen unless you pulled they, the mask down. Would... It would activate the, the oxygen generator and it, the chemicals, and then it would make oxygen. But there was no uh, nothing deployed except the, <coughs> the hoses and the masks. Yeah, yeah it looks like okay. a spaghetti jungle. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Don, are you still awake? It's only an hour, hour to happy hour. It's <laughs> been a happy hour and five minutes. Yeah. It's five, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Go ahead, Don. Definitely. Disregard the the noise. Uh, Dorothy, I'm sorry. Before we sign off, let me shut the silver wings off. The kitchen table radio, you can do things like that. And uh, <laughs> let you, both go. Yeah, there you go. What, what's happening, Dorothy? I want to hear your okay, voice. Okay, on Monday night we have Come Fly With Me program, and that's the uh, uh, regular program that we have scheduled. Uh, then we have Once Upon a Long Time Ago that's coming up. Uh, dance music of the bands in the 50s, uh, history, a uh, little humor goes a long way, another dance band of the 60s, we have the Eastern Cruise Schedule, and then uh, retirement over the history of commercial aviation, uh, Mike's suggestion. So we have that all lined up, and we'll have it on now. Um, e-blast and on the website and be sure to go to the website to see all these things weekly it's updated for your convenience uh, remember that um, we're always looking for donations for our program so uh, please be mindful of that and all the information too is on the website and in our e-blast Back to you, Neil. Thanks, Dorothy. Now, Don, try it again. Here comes Silver Wings. I'm going to try it again. That's our sign-off. Stick playing the night in the background. 
So we'll see you folks again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. And remember, the EAO radio show this Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, when we bring you episode number 464, Eastern Music, Come Fly With Me. By the way, if you haven't visited our website, you can visit that at www.eaoradioshow.com, uh, and then you'll find many more great stories uh, and memories in there. It's time to say goodbye, so, so long, Eastern, so long, Eastern family. So long. left me standing here behind. Silver wings shining in the sunlight, roaring engines headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away, leaving me lonely. Fading out of sight Silver wings Shining Taking you away and leaving me lonely. Silver wings slowly fading out of sight. Slowly fading. Good show, guys. Thanks so much. Okay, good job, Neil. See you later, guys. See you Monday. See you Monday. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.